Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. We're back. Like that smell you can't locate when you stand in dog shit, the anarchist world this week is back and it'll linger long after the program's gone. That's what this is about. It's about lingering, putting thoughts in your mind and then you think about it and decide what to do. You can actually scrape the shit off the bottom of your boot and say, thank the Lord's that I have got rid of that, or you can luxuriate in the smell. This is the Anarchist World this week. My name is Joseph Scum, host of today's program. Do you wonder what anarchism is all about? Not anarchy, anarchism. An anarchist society is a voluntary, non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social structures which are based on direct democratic means where wealth is held in common. So where do we get that definition from? Well, the word anarchism is derived from the Greek anarchos, which means without rulers, not without rules. Now, we've got to understand that anarchism's major strength is its ability to adapt to changing circumstances without altering its core principles. It's a little bit like corporate capitalism, you know? The diametrically opposite, but we can actually adapt to changing circumstances without changing our core principles. And they don't change their core principles of making profits for their major shareholders irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national costs. We don't change our uh, core principles, um, you know, of uh, direct democracy and uh, holding wealth in common. Why direct democracy and holding wealth in common? Well, what gives a ruler power? inequalities in power and wealth. So the best way to create a society without rulers is to decrease the inequalities that exist uh, in power and wealth. And uh, one good way of doing that as far as power is concerned is by involving everybody involved in the decision in the democratic process. And that's what direct democracy is about. And one way of ensuring that people can't use their wealth to... uh, dominate the political, social, cultural, national landscape is by ensuring that wealth is held in common and used for the common good. Now, the 21st century, that's right, the century we're now in, the 15th year, the 21st century is the anarchist century because the core principles of anarchism 
our principles, that's the core principle of anarchism, equal power, equal wealth, our principles that can upset and seat the four horsemen of, the, of a modern 21st century apocalypse that has arisen because of increasing population growth, finite resources, an international economic system based on the creation of ever-increasing profits, irrespective of the human, social and environmental costs, and human-induced climate change. So, if you're interested, listen on. Now, obviously, anarchists are also people who want to improve people's life, and we are involved in many struggles, in many issues, cultural, social, political, at many levels. But the key about being an anarchist is about participation, about being involved. Now, I've got a few reports before we get into the analysis. The first report is those of you who have been following the Tanaminawau Morbohina saga in Melbourne. That's a very interesting campaign, which was initiated by the Anarchist Marine Institute in 2004. Uh, the campaign is almost coming to an end. On the 25th of November, uh, the Melbourne City Council will uh, announce the final design for the Tanaminawau and Morbohina monument which will be built, a substantial monument, which will be built at the corner of Franklin and Victoria Parade in uh, the CBD, across the road from the old Melbourne jail and uh, RMIT. So that will get the nod on the 25th of November. And on the 26th of November, an exhibition will be a three- to four-month exhibition uh, regarding Tanaminawai and Melbourne and that struggle for recognition of the fact that this country was inhabited for over 40,000 years by Indigenous people who paid the ultimate sacrifice for defending their country, their language, their cultures, their way of life, their families, their friends, uh, will be held for about uh, four months. It's at the City Gallery at ground floor, Melbourne Town Hall, and obviously everybody's invited. And we'll tell you more about that as we get closer. And don't forget that on the 20th of January, as we've done now for the last 12 years, since sorry, for the last 11 years, uh, on the 20th of January, sorry, no, not 12, uh, 12, 13 years. It'll be 13 years next year. Uh, the Tanaminawai Mulbohina Commemoration Committee has organised the Tanaminawai Mulbohina Commemorations, and um, you can access that information by going to tanamall.org, the website, tana, T-U-N-N-E-R, It's midday the 20th of January, which I understand is a Wednesday, 2016, which you're all welcome to. And obviously in 2017, we'll be able to hold a commemoration at that new monument, which will have been built by in during two, the first six months of 2016. So uh, it's pleasing to report that. Now, don't forget that on the 1st of November at 10am, um, a number of us, and it's usually a small group, will be uh, making our way to the uh, Murchison Cemetery. Yes, the Murchison Cemetery. Why? We're there to remember and pay our respects to Francesco Fantin, anarchist, atheist, anti-fascist, anti-militarist, murdered at Camp Love Day in South Australia in 1942. So why would bother people from around the country coming to Murchison Cemetery on the 1st of November? 
I'll tell you why. The bones of Francesco Fantini and over 220 Italian prisoners of war and internees who died in Australian camps during the Second World War are deposited in an Italian war cemetery at Murchison in Victoria, which is a small country town not far from uh, Seymour, which is about 130 kilometres from Melbourne. On Sunday the 1st of November, people from around Australia come to pay their respects. The crypt is open once a year after a ceremony. And that ceremony is a mass, which is all, a Catholic mass, which is organised by the Italian government and community. This year, as we did last year and the year before, a small contingent of anarchists and supporters will be going to the cemetery to pay their respects to Francesco Fantine, who is interned. The other 220 Italian prisoners of war internees who died in Australian prison camps at, in, in Murchison. So join us at 10am on Sunday the 1st of November at the Murchison Cemetery. I suggest you bring a seat. It's good to get there early because it's one of the few times, it's the only time during the year, and that's the reason we actually go on the day, that the crypt is opened to the public. Now, Francesca Fantine immigrated to Australia in 1924, a long time ago, 101 years ago. Sorry, 91 years ago. My apolo- No, yeah, 91 years ago. The anarchists fled Italy two years after Mussolini's fascist seized power in 1922. Fearing for his life, as he was an active anarchist in Italy, he fled to Australia. He threw himself into anti-fascist activity in Australia and with the aid of Francesco Camagnola and Ventolino Chicotti opened the Matteotti Club in the Horticultural Hall in Victoria Parade, Melbourne in March 1927 to act as an anti-fascist centre in Melbourne. Matteotti was a parliamentarian quilled by Mussolini's fascists. When the club closed as a consequence of the Depression, Francesco Fantine moved to North Queensland, working on farms and sawmills as a labourer. He continued to identify as an anarchist. With the help of other Italian anti-fascists, he made life difficult for Mussolini's fascist officials in Australia who were trying to recruit Italians living in Australia into their ranks. The outbreak of World War II, as expected, resulted in the internment of Italian fascist sympathisers and Nazi sympathisers. The racism endemic in Australia in the 1940s meant that nearly every Italian immigrant was considered to be a fascist. From a population of just 30,000, 5,000 Italians were interned during the war and another 10,000 were removed from their homes and forced to work on government construction jobs. The highest rate of internment of Italians anywhere among the Allies. Fantine was arrested as an enemy alien in February 1942 at Edmonton outside Cairns and arrived at Camp Love Day in South Australia on the 28th of February 1942. Over 350 Italian fascists were interned with about 60 Italian anti-fascists. Fantine was marked by, for special attention by the fascists and was regularly attacked and beaten for his anti-fascist views. On the 16th of November 1942, while stooping down to get a drink from a tap, Fantine was beaten to the ground by a man wielding a 4B2. 
When he fell to the ground, the beating continued. He died several hours later of his injuries. Giovanni Cassotti was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to two years imprisonment for Fantine's murder. Fantine's body was unceremoniously buried in a grave outside Camp Loveday. His brothers in North Queensland were not even notified of his death. In the mid 1960s, his body, with the bodies of other Italian prisoners of war internees who had died in Australia during World War II, were disinterred and placed in an ossuary at Murchison in Victoria. Fantine divorced soon after he married in Italy. He had no children. His two brothers, Alfonso and Luigi, are long gone. His sister-in-law, Mrs. Ines Gavioli, his only living relative, was 90 in 2007 when she was interviewed over an eight-year period by Dr George Venturini for his book Never Give In, which looks at the lives of three Italian anti-fascist exiles in Australia. Fantine was described as a kind, rigorous, restless, gentle, but determined human being. Francesco Fantine lives in our hearts, his ideas live in our hearts. One day we will create that new world in Fantine's heart. Rest in peace, Francesca. We will not forget your sacrifice. And we don't. On the 1st of November, as I said, a small contingent will be there. You're all welcome to join us. Uh, This is followed by a uh, picnic on the riverbanks of of the Murchison River. So bring food and drinks. So uh, what normally happens is we uh, go into the ostery before around 10am when it's opened. Uh, Pay our respects to Francesca. Uh, then uh, sit around while the uh, Catholic Mass is held and uh, speeches are held by the Italian community. Then at the end of uh, their ceremony, we hold our own ceremony for Francesco Fantine and then we all adjourn to the banks of the river for a uh, picnic. So it's a great day. It's a great way of actually um, learning about our history. Now, if you can't make it, I suggest you go to the Fantine website. Have a look. Q7461, fantine.org. Very simple, Q7461, fantine.org. And if you can't go to that, well, you can always go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org, and we'll have some information about that. So these are these are two actions which will occur. Now, I'd just like to remind you that nominations for the Eureka Australia Day medals close on the 8th of November, which is just around the corner. So if you know somebody whose life reflects the principles elucidated in the Eureka Oath, we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. You can either email us or send us a letter. Don't phone. Don't phone. You know, we want it on paper. A name, a contact address for the person nominated and a sentence of two about why you think they should be nominated for Eureka Australia Day medal. Usually we give out six Eureka Australia Day medals uh, on the day, on the 3rd of December, at Bakery Hill, at the very site the Eureka Oath was taken on the 29th of November, 1854. And don't forget about the Eureka celebrations from 4am to 10pm, which will occur on uh, Thursday. That's right, Thursday, the 3rd of December, in Ballarat, and obviously you're all invited to that, and I'll talk more about that in the next 
few weeks. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Because we do have a lot of things to talk about because there's a lot of interesting things happening and also some things that are not so interesting. But they all are part of the political, social, cultural mix in this country because things have changed in the last six weeks and we need to understand that things have changed. Now, the first thing I'd like to make a comment on is about the Whitlam conspiracy. Now, it's nothing new to be told that Malcolm Fraser, the Governor-General, and those people who own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication conspired to remove a legally elected government in Australia in 1975, on the 11th of November 1975. It is nothing new. The fact there are some written records 40 years later, which come to light 40 years later, which confirm what everybody knew was a fact, you know, is important, but it doesn't, you know, really add much to the debate. Because you need to understand why the Whitlam Labor government was removed on the 11th of November 1973, unconstitutionally. Why? And it's very simple, because this was the most reformist government since federation. The fact that I'm talking to you today on community radio is a direct consequence of the Whitlam Labor government uh, trying to break the power of the Murdoch and the Fairfax media by actually giving people, giving communities, community radio licences to allow them to broadcast to the community at the whole. The fact that single mothers and single parents and single fathers receive benefits is directly related to the reform agenda of the Whitlam Labor government. The fact that we enjoy access to public health care, although it's been whittled away over the last 40 years, is a direct consequence of the Whitlam Labor government. The fact that public education became so important, especially in the tertiary sector, again, a consequence of the Whitlam Labor government. Easy divorce laws, legal aid, community health centres, and the list goes on and on. Within four and a half short years, more reforms were introduced in this country than since Federation in 1901. So it's no accident. It is no accident. The Whitlam Labor government was removed from office by a hostile media, a hostile ruling class, aided and abetted by the United States because of their reform agenda, which gave not only resources but power to people. So let's not forget the reasons. We need to remember the reasons. If this had been a corporate-friendly government, a.k.a. the Turnbull government, there is no way they would have been illegally removed from office. No way. So what we saw was the ruling classes and the legal system coming together bending the rules, changing the rules, recreating new rules to remove a government which was pursuing a reformist social agenda. And it was pursuing this 
reform a social agenda, not because it was a good government, but because of the pressure which had been applied in the late 60s to the political process by hundreds of thousands of Australians who wanted something better for themselves and their children and their grandchildren and the people around them and their community, who demanded something better, who channeled their energy into a revitalised, ossified, an ossified Labor Party which had become revitalised through this groundswell of public support for social reform. So it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of years of struggle. Years of struggle. And then to see those in authorities remove the vehicle by which those reforms had been introduced highlights to what ends they will go to in order to ensure that those born to rule continue to rule. And that's the lesson we need to remember. It's a lesson we forget consistently, constantly. Every day we forget. And the creation of public interest before corporate interests is not about the, just the creation of political party. It's the creation of a vehicle for social change which will be attractive to people who've been marginalised and ostracised from the political and social and cultural processes in this country. Because whether you're a social conservative or a social progressive isn't really the central question. The central question is how wealth is created distributed, how each and every Australian, every person on this continent has the ability to participate not only in the decision-making processes but in a share in the Commonwealth. It's no accident, it's called the Commonwealth of Australia but we seem to have forgotten that. Share in that Commonwealth, not only how to create that wealth but share in that Commonwealth. And for the fast last 40 years we have seen a counter-revolution of extraordinary proportions since the demise of the Whitlam Labor government, which is a reformist government which has been put in power by Australians who are demanding reform by protesting on the street, by agitating in the workplace. And we have seen every major social innovation watered down, slaughtered, removed, buried, cremated by people who believe they are born to rule because they own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. So public interest before corporate interest has been formed for that very reason, has been formed for that very reason, to recreate that climate for inclusive social change which actually incorporates people into the political process. It is not just a political party. It is a social movement that which uses direct action and community boycotts and industrial action in order to promote the interests of those who have been marginalised and ostracised and excluded from the political processes for so long. As I said before, you can be a social progressive, you can be a social conservative, two ends of a spectrum. 
But what about people's attitudes to redistributing wealth? What about people's attitude to devolving power? That is the key. Now, I encourage you to look at their website, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests. Go to the website, pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I dot net. Go to the Facebook page, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Hey, presto, it's there. Have a look at what's happening. You're interested? Download the application form. Fill it. Send it back. You can email it back. You can post it back. Interested? Well, why don't you come along to the annual general meeting, which will be held at 7.30pm on Wednesday the 4th of November. Upstairs at 3CR, 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy. 7.30pm, Wednesday the 4th of November. Very simple. It's not, doesn't take, you know, you don't have to be a neurosurgeon to be a member of public interest before corporate interest. And the interesting thing is, the fact that it's not the social conservatives or the social progressives that are flocking to join public interest before corporate interest, but it's people who find themselves in a marginalised, ostracised situation. People who've been forgotten, no longer part of this country, no longer part of the debate, no longer part of the conversation. And we're not talking about a few people. We're talking about millions and millions and millions and millions of people whose hopes and aspirations for themselves and their children and their grandchildren have been put on the back burner, whose hopes and aspirations have been destroyed. And it's no accident to hear that 25% of high school students do not complete year 12. It is no accident that most of these children are in the public education sector. Because what we've seen in this country over the past four decades, since the 11th of November 1975, what we've seen is a wholesale race to disenfranchise those who don't own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. We have seen public money removed billions of dollars from the public education sector into the private education sector. So though the kiddies are those people who've got the disposable income to buy the best education money can buy, been augmented by the taxpayer. I've got nothing against private education. If you want to send your kids to a private school, well, you bloody pay for it. It's your problem. Don't expect a government handout to send your kids to a private school. It's your choice to have a private education. So what we are seeing is an undervalued, under-resourced, understaffed public education sector which is not meeting the needs of children in this country. And then on top of that, what we are seeing is the privatisation of a tertiary education sector, whether it's TAFE or a university or anything in between, the privatisation of these sectors to deny people the opportunity 
to access education, what we have seen is the dismantling and now the composting of the social elevator which was built as a result of the reforms which were introduced and passed through Parliament by the Whitlam-led Labor government which pushed these reforms as a result of a push from Australians, working Australians, those who were marginalised, to better their lives and the lives of their children and the lives of their community. We don't see that today. It doesn't exist. We don't see that. We see social progressives, radical progressives, you know, social conservatives, crapping on about nothing in particular. We see an issue-orientated political framework where every issue under the sun is discussed except the C word, capitalism, except the role capitalism plays in dividing us, except the role that capitalism plays in creating two Australias. On the one hand, we have banks with record Record profits. The National Australia Bank profits increased by 19.7% over the last 12 months. We have legislation which makes those who have the disposable income have the opportunity to increase their income at the expense of the taxpayer through legislation which rewards people for owning two homes through negative gearing processes, which rewards people you know, for putting money in superannuation. If you're rich, you get more rewards than those who can't put money in their super, extra money in their superannuation funds, which rewards people who borrow money to pay, play the stock market, who can then offset their losses as far as their taxation revenue is concerned. This is the dilemma that we face every day and that's why public interest before corporate interest was created our current membership is 271 and it's increasing rapidly every week within the next few months we should be in a position to register as a federal political party but more importantly we'll be in a position to ensure that there are enough people out in this community across this country that are willing to come out to highlight that it's important that on every legislative agenda that the public interest is put before the corporate interest because today it's the other way around. Corporate interests continue to be put before public interest, whether it's public health, public infrastructure, public security, public education, public arts, public space, and the list goes on and on public parks, public services, and the list goes on and on. On every single indicator we have seen consistently the corporate sector put before the public interests before, since the 11th of November 1975. And enough is enough. And it's time to turn over this juggernaut. It's time to turn over the apple cart that everybody, not just those pushing the apple cart, enjoy the apples in that cart. And that's what it's about. So if you're looking for something a little bit different, you're looking at something that's not issue-orientated, 
you're looking at something that, you know, intends to make a difference. Well, then I encourage you to look at public interest before corporate interests. And if you're interested, join. What's the point of sitting on the sidelines? It's just amazing. I mean, we have been amazed by the fact that so many people who you would think are politically inactive, who are flocking to join public interest before corporate interest, well, those who have, who are socially progressive, or those who are left-leaning, or those who like to complain, they just sit in the sideline and say, well, it'll never work. I'm too cynical. I can't be bothered. I'm so caught up you know, in this this issue, you know, that I haven't got time for anything else. And it's been a real eye-opener, not just to me, but for a lot of other people who are involved in public interest before corporate interests. It's been a real eye-opener where that support is flowing from. All right. Think about it. Pipsy.net. Information, info at pipsy.net. 0439 395 489. Or go to the website. Public in, or go to the uh, sorry the Facebook page. Public interest before corporate interests goes on and on. All right, let's move on. Sahata the butcher. Now I I get a little bit uh, amused by the uh, internet surface surfers I should say, and I, I'm just amused by the. Uh, Conspiracy theories which abound, just abound, you know, from the uh, moon landing didn't, didn't happen to whatever, doesn't really matter, it just goes on. I'm really amused. Now, if you're really into conspiracy theories, we really should look at what happened in Indonesia in 1965. That's right, 50 years ago. What happened in Indonesia in 1965? Well, the Indonesian government in 1965, which was led by Sagane, was pushing a reform agenda. A little bit like the Whitlam Labor government, which was dismissed in Australia on the 11th of November 1975. And in 1965, there was a coup, a by the United States of America, which tapped on the shoulders a few Indonesian generals, including Sahara the Butcher, you know, who uh, climbed on top of the pile of bodies, who then went into a mass orgy of killing their political opponents. Within three months, within three months, over two million Indonesians were slaughtered. Fact. Not a conspiracy. Fact. Most of them, over a million, were members of the Indonesian Communist Party. Over a million. Within three months. And then Suharto the Butcher of Indonesia stayed as dictator for 30 to 40 years incorporating West Papua into the Indonesian archipelago in the, you know, in the uh, late 1960s. 
Here we have, within three months, two million dead. More people dead than the Kamarujis in Kampuchea. One of the greatest mass slaughters of the 20th century. More people dead than the Armenian genocide. On our doorstep, two million. And why do I raise it now, 50 years on? Because 50 years on, you cannot discuss this topic, not only in Indonesia, but to a lesser degree in this country. Buried. All of those you have your little holidays in Bali, just think every time you're on an open field, how many bodies you're walking under. Over 80,000 people were slaughtered in Bali alone within the period of three months. Political opponents eliminated. Not a conspiracy, a fact. Two million dead. So 50 years on, we remember. And we remembered since 1965. It's a topic which was raised over, has been raised over and over again on the Anarchist World this week because it highlights to what extent those in power will use their power in order to ensure that their ideological position continues to be the one true one. That's the dilemma every day. That's the dilemma we all face. Whether it's dismissal of the Whitlam government on the 11th of November 1975, whether it's the execution of Allende and his government in Chile in 1971, whether it's the two million dead in Indonesia in 1965 as part of a political cleansing process, which continues 50 years on, especially in West Papua, it's important that we understand that we cannot allow these situations to be created and recreated. Turnbull. Fascinating, isn't it? Well, you've got to understand the beast, the Liberal National Party, mainly the Liberal Party. Now, when the Liberal Party elected Turnbull as Prime Minister five or six weeks ago. They did so in order to save their electoral bacon. That's simple. You've got to understand the Liberal Party is a factionised party, irrespective of what Malcolm likes to tell us. It's faction-ridden. And there are three factions within the Liberal Party. There's the Social Conservatives an ageing, dying faction of the Liberal Party, but an important one. Older members holding political office, either in the Senate or the House of Representatives, with socially reactionary views. So we've got the social conservatives. Then we've got the largest faction in the Liberal Party, the neoliberals, pragmatists, the neoliberals, the deregulation, privatisation, corporatisation, globalisation faction. Younger members, 
who many have come through the Institute of Public Affairs, the IPA, or the Institute of Private Affairs, I should say, the IPA, who now hold parliamentary positions, who saw that if they continued to hang their hat on the socially conservative section of the Liberal Party, which Abbott represented, their time was up. And then we have a small non-aligned faction headed by Turnbull. Now, Turnbull came into power by six votes. And those six votes came from the neoliberals who understand that in the 21st century, if you want to implement a deregulation, privatisation, corporatisation, globalisation agenda, that you need to have socially progressive views. Because socially progressive views don't really have any impact. They improve people's lives, but they don't actually have any impact on the economic situation. They improve people's, they improve the lives of minorities, but they don't have any impact on the lives of a significant proportion of people. So Malcolm Turnbull is brilliant. He is like a spruker outside a store. You're walking down the street and there are all these stores and you've got all these sprukers and you come up to the Liberal Party store and there's Malcolm spruking for the Liberal Party, telling us it's the party of opportunity, telling us it's the party of trade, telling us it's the party of free enterprise, telling us it's the party of social reform. And you enter the shop. And you look around, and you look around, and guess who's running the stalls? The neoliberals and the social conservatives. They're still in there. They're still flogging the same old shit, but using Turnbull as their spruker. And that'll be Turnbull's great challenge. It's all very well to call yourself a reformer, like the Whitlam government was, that was a reformist government. That was a government which was pushed to introduce reforms by the people who demanded reforms. It's all very well to call yourself a reformer, but do you have the support of a fractured, ideologically driven, socially reactionary Liberal Party to introduce those reforms to ensure we do have a wage, high-wage economy, to ensure that there is a significant social security net, to ensure that every child has equal opportunity through the public education sector, to ensure that every Australian has access to good public health services, to ensure there is a diversity of opinion in this country. And Turnbull doesn't have that push. He joined the wrong political party. 
he's got a problem. Because if by some chance people go past the Spruker and go into the Liberal Party store and see what's on offer, maybe their political fortunes will turn. And then you'll see the knives come out for Turnbull. So although Malcolm would like to be another Menzies, it's going to be hard with the material he has to work with. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Scarn. I'm hosting today's program. You can access material. Go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org. You can give us a call on 0439 395 489. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. All right, let's move on, because it is fascinating, isn't it? Now, I've been around a long time, and the type of work I do puts me into contact with a lot of people from a lot of different areas of this community. And there's something interesting happening in our community, and it's frightening as well as interesting. We are seeing the fragmentation of society. We are becoming tribes. Tribes of people. You've got people running with single issues, as if that issue is the be-all and end-all of their existence. You've got people who feel distressed, left out, marginalised. And although every social indicator is supposed to tell us that we live in the land of milk and honey, it seems that the facts and figures are a little bit different. I mean, I've never seen so much anger. And it's not the type of anger you see directed at governments or people in authority, but anger that's internalised and directed at people around you. And that's reflected to a significant degree in the psychiatric and psychological issues which so many people seem to find themselves tied up in. And then you've got that increasing anger among people who know that irrespective of how hard they work or how much effort they put into their lives, that things are not going to change for them because they understand that that social elevator that we're told that exists in this country was turned off long ago and dismantled long ago. So that's that's that anger of knowing that nothing is really going to change, that things are going to continue for individuals and families as they have, that there is no possibility of change. Then there's that interpersonal anger that occurs when people see no future for themselves. Those increasingly bitter arguments, that violence which flares up, 
whether it's organised or just spontaneous. And every day you can see that in the community. You can see it. And this is an anger which comes from an inability to understand what's happening, where you think the problem is your problem. It's an individual problem. There are individual solutions to your problem. When in reality, there are few individual solutions. We have more psychiatrists and psychologists and counsellors and courts than we've, and, and committees you can complain to than we've ever, we ever had in the history of this country. And we seem to have more problems than we've had in the past. And it covers all age groups, the very young, the elderly. And to a large degree, what we are seeing is the results of 40 years of change which has been directed at enhancing the fortunes and powers of a minority in this country. So that most people find themselves in a situation where it's not a hand-to-mouth existence, but it's worse than that. It's an existence where your life is contained and defined by debt, where your life is defined by insecurity, where your life is defined by by the fact that you see no future for yourself in this community. And we are seeing it in more and more people. And we are seeing it manifest itself in many ways which are counterproductive. And it doesn't matter how many prisons you build or how many psychologists you train or how many health facilities you create, or how many counselling services you have, the solution is not a personal solution. It's a community solution. And that comes from moving away from the spectacle. What's the spectacle? Well, every day we're assailed by the spectacle, whether it's surfing the net, looking for the latest conspiracy theory, you know, to justify our anger, whether it's, you know, being fixated on sport, not only what's happening in this country, but what's happening overseas. Who cares what happens in the soccer league in England? Or whether it's being fixated on your own little hobby, irrespective of that what hobby is. And what we are seeing is what happens when you have a depoliticised society, where people no longer believe that the solution to their problems lies in them getting together and applying pressure in governments at local, state and federal levels to pass legislation to ensure that we create a community where people do have the potential to have secure lives, where they do have the potential to actually have some type of future, where they do have the potential to be part of a thriving community. You know. But at the end of the day, it's up to you, isn't it? 
You can sit there and surf the net, watch TV, go to your local sporting program, become a golf, whatever you like to do, up to you. Or you can actually say to yourself, I'm not the problem. I'm not the problem. I've got, I've got things I want to give to the society. I can contribute. I can do things, but I'm not allowed to. And it's time that you became involved in social, political and cultural activity. That's the key to change. The key to change isn't sitting somewhere, having your prejudice reinforced by somebody who thinks like you, but the key to change is interacting with those around you and organising with those around you to ensure that change occurs. Hope is the love child of desire and expectation. We live in a society without hope. We need to resurrect hope. We need to apply external cardiac massage to hope. Listen to the Anarchist World this week. Yes, I've been a little bit philosophical the last few minutes. And sometimes as you get older, you become philosophical. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Yes, we answer the letters. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. You can email us at anarchistage at yahoo.com. Don't forget the Francesco Fantine Memorial Gathering down at uh, Murchison Cemetery at uh, 10am, Sunday the 1st of November. Don't forget the Pipsy Annual General Meeting on the 4th of November. Go to the website, pipsy.net. Thank you once again. Remember, this program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can email us at anarchistage at yahoo.com. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I've been hosting today's program. Listen in to The Anarchist World this week, next week, on your local community radio station. If the first time you've heard The Anarchist World this week, listen in next week. Who knows where your life could go? Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Brainwash my hands. Oh, Lord, yeah.